Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. What is it to be American? Is it all steam engines in progress? Or is it partly about a relationship with the wide open spaces and the animals that live there? Even the ones that are kind of scary. You know, it's why we still have, you know, a buffalo on our on our coin and, and, and why you're down the highway and you see RVs with, you know, wolves airbrushed on them or whatever. You know, these, these animals are symbols of, of a kind of a real America. It's bullseye. John Wallam's new book, Wild Ones, is about the relationship between Americans and wild animals how we think about them, how we try to protect them, how we sometimes try and get rid of them. Basically, when it comes to Americans and wild animals, it's complicated. Just this idea that human influence can only do bad really backs you into a corner. And the writer Elmore Leonard passed away just a couple weeks ago. He was one of the great masters of American pulp fiction. Westerns, crime, you name it. We'll revisit my interview with Leonard and talk about his distinctive prose. Well, I'm, I know grammar, but if it gets in the way, you know, out it goes. Plus, we'll share comedy from Kurt Brownoller, a couple of new DVD recommendations from The Dissolve, and I explain the virtues of watching drunk people explain important historical events. That's all this week on Bullseye. Stick around. When his daughter was a toddler, John Mualem noticed that she was surrounded by animals, from teddy bears to benevolent bunnies in storybooks. In thinking about it, he realized how little relationship she had with actual wild animals, and how little he had, for that matter. In his book, Wild Ones, he set out to understand Americans' relationships with wild animals, especially the ones which are disappearing. He studied efforts to save three endangered species, the polar bear, losing its habitat at the top of the world, Lang's Metalmark Butterfly, stranded on two sand dunes in Antioch, California, and the Whooping Crane, the remaining eastern population of which is trained to migrate by men in bird suits flying ultralight aircraft. He didn't find any solutions to the deep, maybe even intractable challenges of conservation, but he learned about how the stories of these animals affect us here in the man-made world. John, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's really cool to be here. Thanks. So I want to start with this idea uh, that is sort of an aside in the book. It's uh, called baseline shifting. Um, And... Maybe you could describe what this thing is. Yeah, this this idea it's it's uh, called shifting baseline syndrome. It was uh, this was a term coined in in the 1990s by a fisheries scientist. Um, and basically, you know what this means is that all of us kind of inherit uh, the world in a particular condition, and we think about that as the normal state of things. You know, that's that's natural. However, we inherit the world, and then, you know, we live our lives and maybe there's some, you know, forests that get logged or some types of, you know, different animals disappear and go extinct. And we see all this decay and change. And then the next generation comes along and they inherit that depleted uh, world. But for them, that's normal. 
And so basically, the, it kind of always resets in, in every generation's uh, mind. And we never really can see the changes that are stacking up uh, across time. You know, I think of myself as a reasonably well-educated person, and I don't think I knew that the wild landscape and and particularly the fauna of North America was so hugely different than it is now just 12,000 years ago. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's different. I mean, even from a couple hundred years ago. Um but but yeah, I mean, this is the this idea is that, you know, for me, you know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, right? So we didn't have a lot of wild animals running around. Um, you know, we had like some ducks and some squirrels, and that seemed perfectly normal. And then, you know, we th- there would start to be deer. Like around the time I was in high school, you'd see a deer, and it was just like amazing. You know, there was a deer in my backyard. Um, and now there's deer everywhere, right? So, of, uh, of course, you know, 100 years ago, the whole state of New Jersey was, you know, just flooded with with deer, and we depleted them. Um, and I, I sort of I discovered this idea, um, you know, I kind of stumbled into it backwards uh, because I was looking at this piece of land in in Antioch, California, like right outside Sacramento, and it's this little piece of land, the Antioch Dunes, where this one particular butterfly, the Langs Meadowmark, has still existed. Uh, it's just hung on in this one scrap of land somehow, and I just by trying to figure out what happened to this little postage stamp piece of land over the last hundred years, I started to notice that it was, you know, it was a real famous spot for bug collectors. So a hundred years ago, they all rushed out there and they collected all these new kinds of exciting bugs and got down in the sand and scoured out all these, you know, beetles and flies and named them all. And then they all disappeared because the landscape was unraveling. And then 20 years later, the next generation of kind of bug nerds came out and they got all excited about, uh, you know, what was left there. The little tiny bugs that the first generation hadn't even bothered to, to look at. It was just a cycle that repeated itself. We kind of all will just take what's there. And if you're predisposed to get excited about it, if you're predisposed to think that a deer in your backyard is, is really cool, um, that's going to be a big deal to you. And you're never going to know uh, what was a big deal really to the people before you. Let's talk about what North America was like um, when the first people came to it, um, you know, I don't know exactly how long ago that was, but more than 12,000 years ago. Right. (laughs) What was going on in the natural world of North America that we wouldn't recognize now? Yeah. uh, I mean, it was pretty, it sounds like a pretty amazing place, you know, Um, just uh, we're, we're talking about what geologists call like the Pleistocene era. There were lions in America that were bigger than African lions, humongous ground sloths. There were dire wolves. Uh, there were wait uh, dire wolves from Game of Thrones. Yes, the very the very same ones. Um, yeah, they were just all they call it the Pleistocene megafauna. That's what the scientists call it. Um, and it was just this big hulking beasts. You know, huge things walking around everywhere. And apparently, this all changed because. Along the way, some human being invented a certain kind of spear tip. Yeah, so this is one theory um, about why all this stuff went away, why all this megafauna went away. Is that um, you know people crossed into North America over the land bridge and they invented this thing called the Clovis Point, which was this you know real revolution in uh, in early human weaponry, I guess. And they were basically just able to hunt a lot of these things, you know, even mastodons and mammoths and things. Uh, hunt them to extinction. 
I say in the book, it's always really convenient to think of like 1492 as this huge turning point in America. And obviously it was, you know, this was, it gets held up as this moment when everything really started going wrong in terms of, you know, the nature in, in North America, because uh, the, you know, because the white people came. Uh, but actually, you could also make an argument and people have that it was really, you know, things started going to crap 12,000 years ago when, when humans uh, hunted all this megafauna to extinction. Well, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about how we frame the disappearance of animals and wild animals from our world um, is that you go from a scale of tens of thousands of years to a scale of hundreds of years to the point where now in some cases we're talking about animals disappearing in the scale of a single generation, you know, in the scale of 30 or 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the the pace of, of kind of all of our uh, influence on the world is really uh, speeding up. I mean, and th- this is, you know, there's a lot of history in in the book. And, and one thing I talk about is, you know, in the, the Thomas Jefferson's era, you know, when people just didn't really even understand that extinction was a reality, that, that you could actually drive an animal extinct. It seemed uh, sacrilegious to think that people could undo uh, some of God's creation. Um, and, you know, they would, they maybe arrive, you know, people arrived on the East coast and they started clearing the forests and hunting the wolves and doing all these things. But there was just this sense that the continent was so, you know, big and bounteous that you couldn't possibly exterminate something everywhere. There was always somewhere else it would just go. Um, and I think that really, you know, that was 250 years, you know, 300 years ago, say, um, in that time, you know, it's impossible to think that anymore. The, the, the impact that we're having is just so much more dramatic and so much more apparent. It's right in front of us now. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking to John Muallam, a contributing writer to The New York Times magazine. His book, Wild Ones, is about the tricky and ever-shifting relationship between Americans and wild animals. What was our, and by our, I mean people's, relationship in the United States to wild animals in the time of the founding fathers? How did they think about the bears and wolves and bugs and, you know, fish that surrounded them? You know, on the one hand, people are having to live around these animals in much closer proximity than we are now. So there's just a lot of um, fear or or irritation with things like wolves and, and bears. But on the other hand, you know, there was really uh, people who were holding up wildlife in America as symbols of just how great America was. Um, you know, when the first colonists started coming over, the it was all very practical. You know, you you were coming to a place with no infrastructure and, you know, no uh, there was there was no place to buy anything and you needed to hunt to live. And so it was sort of amazing just how stocked uh, America's pantry was that you could, you know, anyone with the least bit of sense could go out and, you know, shoot a turkey or shoot a deer and, and, and make it. Um, that's sort of like, you know, I think sort of maybe the origins of the American dream that was just a, a tiny bit of hard work you can survive. I mean, back then it was just a matter of math. There were so few people and so many animals. And and over time you start to see, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson really, um, you know, showing that these big, uh, exciting new kinds of animals like a moose uh, are really signs of what makes America great. It's, it's a place that hasn't been ruined uh, like, you know, old Europe. It's a place where people are living you know, in nature and not just kind of sitting around in their parlors. And I think that sort of 
that was a founding idea for our country. It's not one that gets talked about a lot, but you know, it's why we still have you know a buffalo on our on our coin, and 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 why you're down the highway and you see RVs with you know wolves airbrushed on them or whatever. You know, these these animals are symbols of of a kind of a real America. Yeah, and they're all, I think they're also symbols of American primacy and the bounty that. You know, as far as the founding fathers were concerned, was given to us by God. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, I think that's a great point. There was, you know, this story I tell in the book where about the mammoth, you know, which this is really the case study where people started arguing about whether or not extinction was was real, um, because they were starting to discover all these these bones that were humongous, and they didn't know what they came from. And so the logical conclusion for a lot of people, like like Thomas Jefferson, uh, was that these things must still exist somewhere in in America. We just haven't gotten to where they live yet. Uh, and in fact, when he sent uh, Lewis and Clark out, uh, you know, he he told them to keep their eyes peeled for these things. He just figured they'd run into them somewhere, you know, in the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and it was only really, you know, there was more evidence, and slowly it became pretty clear that you know you couldn't really get around it. Like these things were. Uh, an animal. These mammoths were just an animal that was gone from Earth, that things could really be extinct. And then the story changed. You know, people started writing about the mammoth as something that God had wiped out off the face of America. So to clear the way for for the people, you know, obviously we couldn't have inherited, we couldn't have had manifest destiny if there were these monsters out there that could step on us. So, you know, it's just sort of a one case, I think, of, of so many that I that I uncovered where the stories about the animals are almost completely subjective, you know, and they can flip really dramatically uh, depending on how we want to tell them. Let's talk about how Manifest Destiny changed our attitude towards wild animals and extinction, and specifically, you know, one of America's most legendary animals, the bison. You write in the book that at one point there were herds of bison thundering across the plain that were 10 or 20 abreast, and if you stood in the middle of the herd, I, I would imagine you'd have to be real careful. You have to do a lot of dancing. <laughs> but um, if somehow you were able to successfully stand in the middle of this herd as it thundered past, it would literally take hours to pass you um, at, at 20 wide. And by the time it was, you know, 100 years or so after the uh, country had been founded, there were almost no bison around. Um, what happened and, and how do you think it changed our attitude towards wild animals in America? I mean, what an incredible story, right? I mean, you're, you know, there were stories of trains that would have to stop for hours when, when Buffalo were going over the tracks or actually cases of trains being derailed because just columns of Buffalo would just stampede right into them. Um, I mean, that kind of thing, I mean, talk about shifting baseline syndrome. I mean, there's just nothing like that, I think, in our, you know, contemporary country. I mean, I have no I idea what that must feel like to be in the presence of, like, so many animals like that, um, to be overwhelmed like that. And then, yeah, then, you know, I think, you know, you kind of learn about this in, like, uh, middle school history, right? Like, the way that the people would shoot buffaloes out of trains and, you know, they were sort of killed as a as a act of warfare against the Native Americans because the Native Americans relied on them. And so if you cleared out the buffalo, you could, you know, weaken those populations. Um, they were killed for their hides, obviously a huge trade in that. And within, the, you know, the span of less than a generation, 
you've gone from the point where trains are being derailed from the from from so many buffalo to the death of individual buffalo is is sometimes being reported um, by the Associated Press just because it's you know oh there's still some out there you know we know because there's one <laughs> we shot one. What what effect do you think that had on people's ideas of the you know the bounty of of wildlife in our country? It had a huge impact. I mean, this was um, you know this was the period when. America basically invented conservation. And I think that that's when you really start to see uh, a reckoning, I guess, in America. You start to see people just kind of saying, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're the, the country's industrializing. Uh, it's wiping out a lot of these things. And we've got to find some way to be a counterweight. One of the things that you write really eloquently about in the book is the sort of varied and shifting objectives of conservationism, uh, the ways that we try and decide what our uh, ideal course of action and, and, and in fact, our ideal state of our natural world is. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, what, was, what did being a conservationist mean? Yeah, um, well, you know, it wasn't even really the term yet. I mean, they, it was more, they, they called themselves preservationists. And, and mostly it was about, it was hunters. It was people who wanted to make sure there were enough animals left to kill and for, for their children to, to kill, you know, to, to hunt. It was, it was just a resource, really. And also, to some extent, at that point, there was a lot of anthropomorphization of animals. You know, books like White Fang were turning animals into human-like protagonists in an effort to make people who lived in a city or lived in a, uh, you know, didn't live with wild animals, helping them understand these creatures. Yeah, this was like a whole other batch of crazy characters that I that I wrote about. They were called the the nature fakers, or you know, that's what people called them anyway. They they called themselves realistic wild animal story writers, um, and it was this kind of genre at the at the turn of the century that, like White Fang, you know, would use these animals as as um, heroes in these stories, um, and it did really, I think, lay. I mean, as a genre, no one really reads these these books anymore. Um, they were really popular at the time, and uh, they were really controversial too, because a lot of conservationists and and wildlife defenders felt like this was cheapening the animals in some way and kind of filling kids' heads with with lies. Um, and definitely, you know, I don't know that we'd have Disney or any of these kinds of uh, you know children's animal uh, the, you know the kind of animal kingdoms of of childhood without without those authors. Um, it really did kind of lay the groundwork for one strain of, of thinking about these things. After a break, I'll talk more with John Mualam, and he'll explain what we can learn from Humphrey, maybe the most famous whale this side of Moby Dick. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Mualam, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. We're talking about his book, Wild Ones. It's about how far Americans will go to try to save the wild animals that mean so much to them, but are ultimately so far from their daily lives. As you write it in your book, Wild Ones, it kind of strikes me that 
the fact that our conservation efforts are so focused on protecting species, specific species from extinction, is almost a historical accident based on the passage of an interpretation of the Endangered Species Act, like that that got through somehow and and ecologists just realized, uh, okay, we can use this. And it came to be the defining way that we understand our relationship with with threatened ecosystems. Yeah, I think that's right. That's, a, that's an interesting thing to pull out of it. I mean, yeah, the Endangered Species Act... You know, it, it is sort of a fluke that it passed in a weird way. I mean, it was passed in the the one we have now was passed in 1973. It was Nixon's administration who was who was in charge, and you know, he made a big show of signing this into into law, or rather, he didn't make a big show because it happened sort of between Christmas and New Year's. It was just this kind of softball thing. But when he did sign it, you know, he said, "Oh, this is you know, we're saving the heritage, the natural heritage of the U.S." and you know, um, it was all about the grizzly bear and the and the whale and, you know, all these real charismatic things that, you know, who could be against uh, protecting these things? It seemed harmless. Um, but actually, the law had been really beefed up by uh, basically staffers. You know, people in Congress didn't really read the law, but um, it was it was really powerful. You know, it was it was using these uh, individual endangered species to basically um, protect land. And also, you know, you could bro- block uh, land use, like development, people building things. And there was a lot of buyer's remorse, like right right after uh, the Endangered Species Pass, uh, Act passed, that people were realizing like, whoa, you know, like we're actually going to maybe, you know, shelve this dam building project because there's a little minnow in Tennessee that might be affected. And it just, it sort of blindsided a lot of the politicians uh, involved. It seems like that's really when it came into focus that we had to figure out what our goals were. And it seems like an unresolved question. Are are we trying to preserve undisturbed nature? Does that even exist anymore? Are we just trying to keep species from disappearing so that they can never come back? Are we, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of the, you know, a lot of the book is just me kind of spending time on the ground with the people who are really involved in some of these, um, you know, very elaborate, sometimes preposterous looking uh, projects to save individual species, and it was amazing to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't really realize that there was like a, philosoph- a philosophical dimension to the book. But like, really, you can't talk to these people about their work without these kinds of questions bubbling up to the surface. I mean, this butterfly that I was writing about. I mean, it's like the the one place where it lives is on this like shredded scrap of land. Um, you know, the landscape hasn't been the way it you know was naturally for you know probably 100 years they've been mining the sand out of the sand dunes starting with like the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco to cart the sand in as bricks to rebuild and so but somehow through the very hard work of these conservationists they've managed to keep the butterfly just kind of bobbling along uh, in this habitat you know they're breeding the butterfly in a kind of ramshackle uh, lab at a zoo at a community college in, in Southern California. And then you've got a Fish and Wildlife Service employee um, at the dunes who basically spends his year pulling weeds out of the habitat and planting the buckwheat that the butterfly likes. It's just completely man-made at this point. We're simulating, you know, to the to the very meager best of our abilities, uh, what the butterfly needs to survive there. And it's impossible to talk to those people about what they're doing without them themselves raising a question of, 
you know, who, who knows if this is really worth it or, you know, what, what could we be doing better here? You know, what are we actually trying to save? Um, and so I just slowly, as I went through a lot of these projects, those kinds of questions, you know, really crept up on me. Well, you keep meeting people who have dedicated their lives to preserving a species. You know, one of these, one of the, whether it's whooping cranes or this one butterfly or polar bears, um, who also, you know, as a corollary, are willing to say to you that they think it's a lost cause. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I think what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of these people is like, they, you know, I was sort of an outlet for them to talk about some of these, you know, more, I guess, philosophical. I mean, that sound makes it sound kind of high-minded, but um, just the kind of what the hell am I doing kind of questions, you know, that's not something that you put in your grant application, you know, when you're applying for money to breed the butterflies. And it's not something you even really talk about in your meetings. You're just trying to keep the project going and, you know, have enough, uh, you know, budget for it. Um, and I thought there was something really noble about the fact that, um, you know, they weren't, uh, for the most part, kind of bleeding heart uh you know, idealists who who didn't want to entertain uh, some of the doubts that they felt. I mean, they're just, they're, you know, we're all living in this really complicated time. It seems impossible to be engaged in some of this work without without wondering what it's all going to add up to. And I thought there was something really noble about that, that, they, that they're going through those same kinds of questions that I think a lot of us on the outside are. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to John Mualem. His new book is called Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. One of the stories in the book is one that was very resonant for me. And it may just be because I'm from the exact right place and I am the exact right age. But it's the story of this humpback whale named Humphrey who made national news in the 1980s uh, when he, and it later turned out he was a she, uh, swam up the Sacramento River uh, through the San Francisco Bay, which is not a good place f- for whales um, because there's no krill. Right. <laughs> there's no salt once you get up river. There's, there, there's nothing. Right. Yeah. There's all kinds of problems for whales. Uh, right. <laughs> there's also no transparent aluminum holding tanks like in Star Trek Four. Exactly, which came out the following year, and I couldn't help but wonder if, if the story of Humphrey somehow... Um, yeah, so... So this whale, this whale went up, went up the wrong street, and it became a national news story, um, a, such a big news story that I think the first one of these happened when I was four or five, and I remember it. And we figured out a way, thanks to the efforts, the combined and somewhat uh, random efforts of thousands and thousands of people, like people in houseboats and stuff, to get it out, and. Then a few years later, it just came back and beached itself. Right. What do you think we can learn from that story? Um, yeah. Well, I think that's just a, a perfect case of, of sort of animals doing their best to upend our idealistic um, read on, on you know, how things ought to go. Um, yeah, I mean, this was a case where this this whale was like just a huge you know, cause. I mean, like Wayne Newton had talked about doing a benefit concert to like raise money for, for Humphrey. And then, you know, in 1986, uh, Humphrey just shows up again and basically beaches, its, beaches itself uh, next to Candlestick Park, more or less. Um, and, and so, 
you know, what do you do? I mean, what the thing I found really interesting was the reactions at the time. You know, you'd read these newspaper stories and, and you know, there was speculation that maybe Humphrey was uh, like a harbinger of a new species that was trying to get onto land, you know, that, that, we should, <laughs> that, that it, this was like a, a pioneer whale um, or that he was part of this supreme intelligence and he was trying to tell us something. Um, so what can you take away from it? I mean, I think for me, the thing that I took away from it, which I took away from so many stories in, in the book, um, is just the way our imagination uh, is is riveted by these animals, and but the very uh, nondescript way, <laughs> you know, the way that we can weave whatever stories we want about them, and then also the way that because we wield so much power on the on the planet, the way that you know our actions, uh, you know, how influential our actions are, that our imagination, the way we read these things and feel they ought to go, actually becomes an ecological force because we we try to make the world the way we think it ought to be. You know, we try to send the whale uh, back to the ocean, you know? Um, and uh, and then when the whale comes right back, we just, just we have no choice. We just do it again, you know? Um, and I think there's a certain beauty in that. You know, there's a certain beauty in sort of interacting with the things around you in a way that you feel is the most, the most moral. Um, but it's interesting even now that when you hear about the Humphrey story, no one really mentions the the kind of fact that it, you know it just came right back. You know, I have I have a book I bought my daughter about Humphrey the lost whale. It's all about the original rescue, and it's very dramatic. And then at the end, he is breaching you know under Golden Gate Bridge and telling all of his friends goodbye. And then the book ends. And then in the in the back flap, you know, where you're obviously not going to read that to your kids. It's just, you know, in the small, regular font. It just as a footnote mentions that he, he actually just came right back and beached himself again. It seems like the central issue here, and it's one of the central issues in, our, in, in your book, is that we have a hard time resolving our hubris around animals that we can't decide whether or not we have dominion over animals. And when I say that, I mean, not just in a negative way, but in a positive way as well, that part of what we see in this book from all these different efforts is, you know, partly we are destroying animals' habitats and and thus killing animals and, and leading to their extinction. Partly we are saving them um, from a- extinction through these Herculean efforts on these the part of these individual people. But partly it's just bigger than us, and it's really hard for us to deal with that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I don't think there's like, you know, an answer to like, how are we supposed to live with animals? I mean, it's just, it's such a huge idea that we even share the planet with these other creatures, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, they're not extraterrestrials, but they're sort of co-terrestrials, right? They're these other other things with their own needs that we can't really communicate with. Um, and I think it's, it is just sort of energizing to see, you know, that we're, we're in the fight, you know, that we're trying to figure that out, um, even when we're wrong, even when what we're doing looks futile, you know, even when we're dressing up in white costumes and flying little airplanes in front of whooping cranes. Um, it's that kind of investment in something that's not human, that's outside of the world we, we generally assume that we're confined to, that just really is... Um, it's invigorating, you know, it's invigorating to kind of open yourself up to some of these questions that, that, that arise from, from trying to figure out how are we supposed to live with these things on, on the same planet. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. John Muallam. His book is called 
Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. He'll be doing a short East Coast book tour next week with the band Black Prairie. They recorded the soundtrack for the book. Right now, we're going to hear a little bit of that soundtrack. This is a song called Dawn Departure, Jefferson County. Details about the tour are at John Mualem, M-O-O-A-L-L-E-M dot com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I was just talking to John Mualem about how humans really like to think they're making the world a better place. Well, Kurt Brownoller does that too, but in his own, let's say, distinctive way. Here's an excerpt from his new stand-up comedy album, How Do I Land? So, I'm obsessed with this idea. This is, I realize that this is like my purpose as a comedian. It is my reason for existence, is that I want to insert stupidity or absurdity into strangers' lives because I think for a moment it can make the world a better place, okay? And so the ways I've been trying to do this are I've been going to Barnes & Noble and taking books off the shelf and signing them from the author and then putting them back on the shelf. Like like for that uh, girl with the dragon tattoo book, I just wrote, um, hope you like my book. Sorry about all the rape. And put it right back. Uh, and then for a Clive Cussler book, uh, I just wrote, Jive, Hustler! Clive Cussler. <laughs> and then put it back. <laughs> so another way that I've been trying to insert uh, stupidity or absurdity into strangers' lives, I've been going to, to pharmacies buying a bunch of greeting cards, taking them home, signing them with alternate endings, and then bringing them back and putting them back on the shelf. I'd like to share a few with you now. This one is a a card for a child. It is a picture of a dinosaur. And it just says, you're four. That's all it says. Just a declarative statement of fact. You're four. Someone came up with this and then pitched it to another human who approved it. Just so you guys know. Dinosaur, you're four! And someone was like, print it, make it! Okay. So it says, you're four. And then on the inside, I just wrote, only one year until memories. Why do we do anything for children before age five? This is for, it's a get well card. It's for, it's, it's got a little bear and he's sick, he's sick, he's in bed. You know where bears go when they get sick. And, um, and it just says, love is the best medicine. And then I just wrote, that's why we're not taking you to the hospital. <laughs> it's a card for Christian scientists. 
this one is the last one here. It is a, uh, just a picture of a river. And it just says at the top, what is a sun? And on the inside, I just wrote, seriously, I don't know. Sorry I wasn't around. Kurt Brownall from his new stand-up comedy album, How Do I Land? You can find it online through the Kill Rock Stars record label or at KurtBrownAller.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bullseye is all about separating the wheat from the chaff and figuring out what stuff in pop culture is worth your time. So this week we're talking about film with our culture critics from the new film site The Dissolve. We've got staff writer Nathan Rabin and senior editor Tasha Robinson here to talk about some of their favorite new documentaries out on DVD. Nathan, let's start with you and your recommendation, a movie called A Band Called Death. It is about an actual band called Death. Uh, Tell me about the band first. Well, a band called Death were this very, very fascinating kind of anachronism, an anomaly. They're basically these three black brothers from Detroit who began playing this really punk rock music before punk rock existed, kind of before the rise of the Sex Pistols and the Bones. Being three black men from Detroit playing punk rock was not an easy sell. And there's this wonderful moment within the context of the movie where Clive Davis, you know, the legendary mogul, offers to sign them to kind of make all their dreams come true to spread their message far and wide, but they have to change their name because nobody wants to see a band called to death. David, in no uncertain terms, just said, tell Clive Davis to go to hell. Okay, so David turned the deal down. We were flabbergasted. And yeah, I would have changed it in a split second. Okay, I would have. But my spirit was telling me, go with your brother. So this group that had all the potential in the world just kind of never really amounted to anything. And then the second half of it is devoted to this really fascinating resurrection. Uh, decades after, you know, the group's demise, where they were found by this whole new generation and, you know, had this incredible success that they never had the first time around. It reminded me a lot of uh, Searching for Sugar Man, which is another life-affirming, utterly irresistible look at the uh, resurrection of an enigmatic musical genius from Detroit. Tasha, let's talk about another film about family, Stories We Tell. Now, this is a documentary directed by Sarah Polly, who's both an actress and a filmmaker. This is her first documentary, and it's about her parents. Tell us about her parents. Well, her parents were both actors, and they met while acting together. And her mother died uh, when she was fairly young. She was 11 uh, when her mother died of cancer. So she never really got to know her. And she started out making this documentary kind of in order to get to know her through family. Well, I guess if you could start by describing Mom in as much detail as possible. Oh, well, Mom... She, she, was, she was the most fun I could think of as a child. She was infectious, enthusiastic, and excited about everything. 
but there's, she discovered some remarkable things in the process. If you watch the trailer for the movie, the trailer gives it all away, so I, I wouldn't actually advise that unless you really need to be sold on the film. It's a much better experience if you take it as she took it herself, because the film ends up kind of charting her journey from you know, going to all of these family members and saying, tell me about my mother, to finding out a lot of things about her mother that she might or might not have actually wanted to know. Tasha Robinson recommends Stories We Tell, a documentary directed by Sarah Polly. Nate Rabin recommends A Band Called Death, directed by Mark Christopher Covino and Jeff Howlett. You can find their writing online at The Dissolve. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. After a break, we'll revisit my conversation with the late Pulp Fiction writer, Elmore Leonard. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Dave Hill from Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident on the Maximum Fun Network. I'm here with my lovely and talented secretary, Ms. Shana Feinberg. Shana, I understand you've been doing a bit of research to find out what listeners think of the show. Yes, I have, Dave. And what have you found? Well... People that love it say they love it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Awesome. What, what do people that hate it say? They hate it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Oh. Listen to Dave Hill's podcast dancing on the Maximum Fun Network, motherfucker. Was that too much? No, I think it was perfect. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. The writer Elmore Leonard died a couple of weeks ago. He was one of the most revered Pulp Fiction writers of all time. His prose was precise, deliberate, and human. As he put it, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. But you might know the film adaptations of his books even better than his novels. His work inspired Get Shorty, Out of Sight, Jackie Brown, and 310 to Yuma, among others. The FX series Justified also grew out of his work. To reflect on Elmore Leonard's life, I'm going to play an excerpt from our conversation in 2007. When Leonard's career started in the 1950s, he was writing Western, still trying to put together the writing style that would become his trademark. I was reading Hemingway. When I was writing Westerns, I read For Whom the Bell Tolls. I'd open it anywhere just to get into the flow of his particular uh, sound, which I loved. Uh, and it was fairly formal in For Whom the Bell Tolls because it's translation from Spanish, supposedly. And, um, and, and I learned an awful lot of you know, studying Hemingway. But one thing I noticed, he didn't have much of a sense of humor, <laughs> if he had one at all, you know, because certainly in the end, he proved he, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I found a writer named uh, Richard uh, Bissell. Mm -hmm. Richard Bissell wrote Seven and a Half Cents that became the musical The Pajama Game. Mm -hmm. Bissell was a pilot on the Mississippi River, and he pushed barges up and down the river, and his characters were he was he was a he was a funny writer he was he wasn't a, a comedy writer but his characters were funny because they were so human these dumb guys working on barges you know or a guy who's in love with Ava Gardner and and just thinks about her all the time living on a houseboat on the mississippi 
And uh, he finally, though, quit because he didn't like to write that. He didn't like to write fiction, have to think up stories. And he ended up in Holiday Magazine doing just travel pieces. Right. But I like to write. I really li- I get my most pleasure out of sitting down and thinking of a scene and developing a scene and getting the people to talk. That's what... Uh, I think that gives me more pleasure than anything. Why do you think that you were moved so strongly by literary fiction if your objectives were to write popular fiction? I mean, why why did you keep going back to Hemingway when you're... um Well, the writers I liked, Hemingway, O'Hara, Steinbeck, they're literary without being boring. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I can learn from these guys, especially O'Hara, dialogue. Wonderful dialogue, wonderful c- constructions of the way people talk. Uh, so I, I concentrated on that. Steinbeck, in uh, Sweet Thursday, in his prologue, he has a character from Cannery Row saying, I don't like to read uh, uh, descriptions in books. I want to figure out what the person looks like by the way he talks and what, by the way he acts, the kind of guy he is. And this was written, I think, in 1955 or six, and I thought, good, I won't have to describe people so much anymore. I'll just use a lot of dialogue. Do you remember, like, the actual instance when you read that? I remember that. Uh, well, I used it again in my rules. I have ten rules. You have to have ten at least. Yeah. And uh, that's a, that's a rule, rule. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, and I remembered, of course, that that's where I read it. I mean, that it came straight from Steinbeck, and that he said that in that book that I will label a chapter hoopty doodle <laughs> if I'm going to take off and be literary, and it won't it won't have anything to necessarily won't have anything to do with the plot. It'll just be me writing. You know, and you can read it or not. <laughs> I thought that was a good idea to warn the reader. Look out, here I come. I'm going to show off now and show you what a good writer I am, you know. So then I made up all these rules, uh, 10 rules, which I have, which have gotten a lot of uh, use. They, I mean, they have been referred to all over the place. Uh, who was it? One uh, writer I like a lot in New York said that they should be posted on the, in, on the wall in the city room of every newspaper. And I didn't think that they applied to nonfiction. Right. You know? But he said they do. One of the rules uh, leave out the parts that readers tend to skip. You know, well, that, I don't know why anyone wouldn't <laughs> right. do that, you know. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jesse Thorne. You're hearing my conversation with the late Pulp Fiction writer Elmore Leonard. He was famous for his vivid characters and his succinct prose. We spoke in 2007. Well, let me ask you this, though. I, isn't, isn't, I would imagine for a lot of writers, the hoopty doodle is like one of the parts where they get the most pleasure out of writing. They're like, wow, I'm really writing my butt off. I'm sure. Here. I'm sure. And, and it, it must be good because it's so difficult for them. Uh-huh. It takes them all day to write a paragraph and think, Oh, boy, 
Yeah, but look at it, you know, and there's a lot of alliteration in there and good stuff. <laughs> do you now do you let me ask you this though. Do you write that stuff and and like get pleasure out of working it out and then delete and then cross it out later or uh do you work hard never to write that stuff? Uh I avoid writing that. I I I say if if proper usage gets in the way, it may have to go. So I want to make sure that, that my, the sound of my characters, because I'm always writing from a character's point of view, so that the sound of the scene is that character's sound. And what he sees, of course, is his opinion of, of uh, what he sees. But then you get not only what he sees, but also you learn about him also. Try not to, you know, overwrite. And that would be like sentences like, Upon entering the room, so-and-so noticed, you know, I would never write a sentence like that. But that's the way we were taught to use the independent or the dependent clause. You don't look at me. Whichever one it is. (laughs) First, you know, you don't lead with the prepositional phrase. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any grammar thing you say, I'm just going to go ahead and agree with it. Let's make that clear right now. Well, I know grammar, but if it gets in the way, you know, out it goes. It's funny because so many of your books have been adapted into movies, and you hear people saying, you know, oh, well, Elmore Leonard's movies, Elmore Leonard's books translate so well into movies because they're so dialogue intensive, which they, the books very much are. But that actually kind of, in a funny way, makes an impediment if you're trying to make a movie. Because in a movie, you can't just have people talking to each other. That's what they find out. (laughs) That it looks like a movie. It's done in scenes and moved with dialogue. But you've got to be very careful that you've got to get the action going. You've got to keep it moving. It's a motion picture, you know. So, uh, yeah, it can be a trap. And and Scott Frank, who has adapted two of mine, Get Shorty and Out of Sight, is the first, will be the first one to tell you that adapting my uh, work is not easy at all. Because he has to find out, he said, what the theme is first before he can begin to um, write a screenplay. I said, the theme? I, I said, I don't, ha- I don't have themes. He says, yes, you do. You have themes. <laughs> And then he reads the book, and he tells me what my theme is. Is it a surprise to you when you learn Always, it? always. Like, get shorty, the theme was older people in the film business trying to make it. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> wow. So I was happy with that. When did you when did you start transitioning from uh, westerns into the, you know, crime thriller whatever your current genre is called. When the magazines folded because of television, when there were 32 westerns on primetime television, and I didn't think any of them were any good, (laughs) because, and every one of them for several years, they all ended with two guys facing each other in the street and having this contest. No one counted to three, but might as well. And they drew their guns and fired, and the good guy won. And I wrote eight Western uh, novels and 30, 32 short stories, and I never had that scene. Never. Because it didn't happen. 
in writing that many books in that kind of clear of a genre like the western genre is a is a had really a, like a lot of conventions attached to it and so forth like the one that you just mentioned the kind of two guys fighting in the street did you ever find it restrictive like or was it in or was it did it have kind of the opposite effect to have those conventions well, when it went in the research that i did they never they never faced off in the street. If someone wanted to shoot somebody, he went into the saloon and saw the guy at the bar and fired at him uh, five times and missed four, you know, and th- but may- maybe hit him once. And that's the way it was. They were using these big, cumbersome uh, 44 Colt revolvers, and um, it just wasn't in movies and also the hats they wore uh, in in those movies used to turn me off me they were i i always <laughs> i referred to them as dale evans cowboy hats they're neat little um with the same kind of a low crown and little curled right. rim you know and you see pictures of people in the west in the 80s and 90s they had shape they all wore shapeless hats right never with the nice a curve to well, the rim. There was a relatively limited amount of hat blocking equipment well, in the I old think, west. Well, that, that was probably <laughs> it. Yeah. Elmore Leonard. He and I spoke in 2007. Leonard died in August at the age of 87. For my full conversation with the great writer, go to maximumfun.org or just search the internet for Elmore Leonard and The Sound of Young America, which was the name of this show back then. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. If you've somehow avoided seeing drunk history on TV or the Internet or whatever, I will explain it. A few years ago, a comedian named Derek Waters was talking to a friend. His friend was drunk, and his friend was telling him the story of the death of Otis Redding. Now, needless to say, this is a very emotional story, but... Like I said, his friend was pretty seriously hammered. So while the enthusiasm for this story was there, the storytelling execution was, you know, mixed. That's when the lightning struck Derek. What if he could tell the most important stories in American history with the help of people who were super, super plastered? And Drunk History was born. Waters and director Jeremy Connor get comedians wasted and then have them tell historical stories that are immensely important to them. And they have actors, sometimes really famous ones, reenact the stories. The actors even lip sync to the sort of slurry, semi-drunken dialogue. So here's a clip. You can't see the actors acting in period garb here, but you can get a sense of what they have to work with. Frederick Douglass comes to the White House. Senator Pomeroy is like, da-da-da, Abraham Lincoln, let me introduce you to Frederick Douglass, a black, former slave, a good black man who has some speeches. He would like to talk to you. I'm not being prejudiced. Drunk history is 
the story of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln or the black businesswoman who financed abolitionist John Brown or Woodward and Bernstein punctuated every so often by what I will call protests from the storytellers' bodies. Woodward meets Felt. And he says, And all of this is hilarious, but it's also weirdly affecting because drunkenness impairs speech and thought, but it also heightens emotion. You find yourself rooting for these storytellers, for these plastered patriots. You want to know the end of the story, but you also want to revel in how much they care. These folks are telling stories that inspire and move them. These great American stories. Most of the time, history doesn't come down to the most perfect calculation. It comes down to the most powerful passion, to the folks who believe the most. And on Drunk History, there's never any shortage of feeling, which, honestly, is kind of beautiful. When he was 11 years old, Teddy Roosevelt said, if I'm going to be anything, the thing that I'm going to be is a badass. And that day, he fulfilled that promise to his young self, and he became a rock star. That's my own shot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Thanks to KALW in San Francisco this week for engineering help. And just for being great. Thanks, KALW. Interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. Speaking of folks who are great, you can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast for free in whatever software you use to listen to podcasts. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always post on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org or just send me an email, jesse at maximumfun.org. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.